All right, so we're going to jump into the gospel first. We always like to, to open with that. And I'm going to read from John, John chapter 1. I've got some of it written on the board because this, this has to do with uh, what we're going to be talking about tonight. Plus, it's a great um, text for the gospel. So in John 1, starting in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I'm going to jump down to verse 9. It says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of, of man, but of God. So here we see that Jesus Christ came into the world for a purpose. He came here, became one of us, dwelt among us. He was the light of the world. He became truly man while at the same time being truly God. And his purpose here was to die so that we could be made right before our holy God. So we could become children of God is what it says in verse 12. And it talks about, in verse 13, who were born, it's talking about born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's talking about being born again in God. This is the good news that we did come into this world as sinners. We have sinned before a perfectly holy God whose standard is perfection and, and righteousness and holiness, a standard that we cannot live up to. Um, but Jesus Christ, thank goodness, came into this world so he could perfectly uphold that standard for us. And then he died in our place. He was a substitute. We should have been the ones who died on that cross. We are the ones that deserves God's wrath. But Jesus Christ took that upon himself for us because he loves us. He died for us. And so, as this says here, that we can be born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that is the good news that Jesus Christ, who is God, died for us. And we always want to start our study talking about the gospel it's the most important thing that we can do. And like I said, there are people listening besides just us. Um, there's people in the Philippines listening, in uh, Italy, uh, England, Australia. It's crazy whenever it shows me the different countries that people listening to this. So we always want to make sure that we, at, right at the beginning, if they listen to five minutes of it, I want them to hear the gospel. And it's something that we always want to do. Is That's really the ocean that we swim in is the gospel. So last week, um, just to kind of catch us up, we, we were talking about the deity of Christ. We've been talking about the Trinity. 
and how that Jesus Christ was truly God. And then we also moved into talking about the Holy Spirit, showing that he is a distinct person. He's a distinct uh, person within the Godhead. He's a part of the Trinity, and we, we spent quite a bit of time last week talking about the Holy Spirit. This week we're on page 26, and we're going to get into that, um, that dreaded word that some people... Um, dread is uh, philosophy and we've I've been kind of hitting a little bit on philosophy because I've been trying to to show you guys how that it is important and how that the Bible uses philosophy they they use the words of the philosophers to bring the truth of the gospel to people they use their own words many times against them and so in this case we're going to be looking at how that philosophy kind of helped um, the church fathers uh, to sharpen the way that we define the Trinity. And we've been talking about that, about how that God allowed church heresy to come into the church throughout church history uh, so that he could help us to better understand who he truly is. Help us understand who he truly is. So let's look at, at uh, page 26. We're going to jump into this real quick. So in verse 26... Um, under a crash course of philosophy and interlude, we have a point here. It says, before we get into early church theology on the Trinity, we need to take a moment to define three important words of early church thinking. First word is essence. The second word is existence. And the, the third word is subsistence. Subsistence. So first we're going to talk a little bit about essence the word essence and what that this word means and why it's important so this next point here under essence it says the the word usios in greek means to be and in english we translate it to mean being and this word usios is going to be a very important word that we're going to start seeing uh, as we, as we develop what we're talking about. It'll probably be next week before we really get into this word. We may get into it later to, today. But this Greek word really helped to shape um, the, our understanding of how to sharpen the Trinity throughout church history. We're going to talk a little bit about this. Um, and we've, al we've also already used uh, the word being in our study. I keep trying to to bring that word up and it's going to be used a lot more. We're going to use it uh, uh, we're going to talk about the word being a lot tonight. And in the minds of these early philosophers, some of which is written up here on the board, this was really what their focus was. It was on the word being. Uh, it's what we call metaphysics or physics that is above and beyond that what we perceive in this world. Is kind of what we're talking about. So they're looking at what these philosophers were doing when they were looking for what they called ultimate reality. Ultimate reality. Because they didn't really understand God and they didn't believe in God. So it's not much different in today's world, except for today they just wanted to look and point at evolution and things like that. But this was, um, this was before that. So... Uh, one of the things, most of these guys, I'm sure you've heard, probably heard of some of these guys that I've got written up here. They were written prior to Christ. They, they wrote and they did their philosophies before Christ. Uh, so it was in B.C.'s when most of these guys existed. So everybody that we're going to be talking about tonight. And so some of the synonyms for the word essence, 
that we're talking about here, the word essence, some of the synonyms that's used throughout church history is being, the word being that we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, you're going to be hearing this in this study, but also substance, and, which is referred to as usios, which we're going to be talking about. Um, and this is why that Plato made a very important distinction. Uh, Plato here, and he made a distinction between being and becoming, and we're going to, don't let this confuse you, because you're going to understand it here uh, before this is over, so, but he made a very important distinction between being and becoming that's going to be really important, especially when we get to our study later on the seity of God, uh, which is one of his attributes. Now, Par, um, Parmenides he wrote this statement, and this, this statement rocked the world, and he was one of the earliest philosophers. He was prior to these guys. He wrote this word, um, whatever is, is. And does that sound like it rocked the world, like a statement that rocked the world? Has anybody ever studied this or know, know what he's talking about here? Whatever is, is. Sounds like something in the 60s. Something in the sea, yeah, it does, it does. The one I've heard is, it is what it is, which yeah. I don't know if that's, that's, that's it, is it is what it is today, yeah, it is what it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, he, what, he's, what he's saying here by this word, what, by, by this statement, whatever is, is, is he's saying that um, if something is constantly changing, then we truly can't say what it is, right? So if something is always in a state of change, how can you identify it wholly whenever the next second it changes into something else? And we know that as we age. We can see that all over the world. So what he's talking about by saying whatever is, is, he's talking about um, this statement of unchangeableness. A statement of unchangeableness. That's what he's talking about. So in, in this instance, he's talking about, this is where we get our word, essence. It's where we get our word, essence. And we're, that's probably not clear now, but we're, we'll, we'll get there. So we'll get there. Um, so from this... Heraclides disagreed. And so he says, basically what Heraclides says is, whatever is, is changing. Is changing. So um, his famous statement is wrote here on the board, the same man cannot step into the same river twice. Now why is that a true statement? Because huh? the water is moving. The water is moving. Yep. The man is changing. The man is changing. That's right changing, whatever is, is, he was kind of getting to the same conclusion that Heraclitus was saying here, but he was on the kind of opposite end of it. He's saying, we can't identify anything. So what they were doing is they were kind of in a battle between something that's changeable and something that um, is unchangeable, right? Changeable, unchangeable, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? This is talking about a state of unchangeableness or being. Being. That's the word being. Um, it's also what we would call existence. So we could, we could say existence. 
And the reason that this becomes important is because of what Plato did. And Plato, he, he puts this the statement that there must be something fixed in the state of being, or nothing could be in the state of becoming. So this is what, what, Her what Heraclitus and what Parmenides is doing here. This is talking about a state of unchangeableness, ultimately it's talking about God. And, and changeableness is talking about man. Okay? And so what, what he's talking about, what Plato's talking about with being or becoming, God is in a state of being, man is in a state of becoming, So in other words, what Plato said was man's not really a human being, but a human becoming, is what, is what Plato said, if that makes sense. So the reason that this becomes important um, is because philosophy had a really huge impact on Christian theologians. So they understood God was pure being, that we're talking about over here, God is its pure being, um, because of, of what Plato was talking about, with um, all of God's creation being becoming being a becoming. Okay, am I making this clear? Because I, I feel like I'm not. Um, so Plato is really making a distinction between being and becoming, being and becoming. God is in the state of being, and man is in the state of becoming. Plato is not who came up with this, though. This is what Christian philosophers came up with, but they got it from Plato. Because what Plato did, and what all these philosophers did, they talked about... Um, th this word, this state of being, of unchangeableness, they called it Logos. So this is where we're going with this. If this starts to make sense. So philosophy, that's why the, the first John becomes so important because John understood this concept. He, he was familiar with each one of these things. And so whenever he wrote John 1 through 3, of course, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he intentionally used the Greek word Logos. He intentionally used that word. Um, so what he was doing was he was saying, philosophers, this thing that you call Logos, that you don't know what it is, that it's just some substance that's floating in outer space, that everything that is in the state of becoming has to get its becoming from, right? There has to be something fixed in the state of being, or nothing could be in the state of becoming, so there could not be such thing as man. That's what he's saying. There could be no such thing as man. John's saying this Logos that you're talking about here is Jesus Christ. It's the Word. The Word was with God and the Word. Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being 
came into being that has come into being. Does that make sense now? And why that this became important. So this became, this became important and it all started flowing into uh, not only John using it, but early Christian fathers used it to help us to understand the Trinity. And so we'll kind of get into that a little bit. <clears throat> so, um, over on page 27, um, we're ta- now we can talk a little bit about this word existence. Do you, do you understand essence on what we're talking about now? Does that make sense? Sorry I made, I was getting these two confused for a second. Um, okay, so existence, the word existence, it becomes synonymous with becoming, with the word becoming that we have, becoming, which is man, okay? This is throughout uh, church history we're talking about. We're going to start seeing this in some of the creeds and confessions whenever we read this. That's why some of this language is going to start making sense whenever we get into some of this. So the word existence becomes synonymous with becoming, all created things are in the state of becoming or existence, as Heraclitus says over here. God is not in the state of existence or he would be in a state of change. He does not change, therefore it is in the state of being or essence. So this is going to be real important too whenever we get to our study on God's immutability how that God does not change. He never changes. So he's, and that's very comforting to us because um, we know that, that we can depend on God and everything that he says that he's going to do, he's going to do. It's going to be true. So we, we know that he's faithful. We know that he does not change. And so um, this statement is brought up um, pretty regularly on, on the how that mankind is uh, in a state of change and so we can't necessarily be relied on all the time so I don't think any of us would put our full trust um, in in man at the same as we do in God because we know that man can change and we know that God does not change so this gets real important when we get into the, to that study on immutability so I'm just kind of bringing that up um, just to kind of get us thinking about that too um, we and the next point here says we say that God exists, but historically speaking, God is beyond the state of existence. He is whom all that exists receives their ability to exist. So that's why that that this word unchangeableness, God. This is this was called. I had the word wrote over here. Well, I'll write it again. Essence. This is the this is where that we get the word essence from, okay. And so we we don't get the word existence. The word existence actually came from this unchangeable or this this changeableness or becoming. The word existence came, okay. If that makes sense. So that's why that I'm saying here that. <coughs> That we say that God exists, but historically speaking, God is beyond the state of existence. He is whom that that exi- that exists. He is whom all that exists receive their ability to exist. So, 
the next que- the next question I have here says the attribute of God that shows his unchangeableness is called what? And we've already mentioned it. It's his immutability, the immutability of God. So is this making sense so far? Okay. So when it comes to the Trinity, the term used is subsistence. The prefix X is replaced by the prefix sub, which means below or under. So, you know, we've talked a couple times about how the words have changed over over time. We talked about um, how that um, the modern terms, modern modern definitions have have kind of changed um, the way that we that we see things. Anthropomorphisms is the, is one of those words that we talked about that have changed changed meanings. Well, so has um, this word subsistence. If you look up the word subsistence in the in Webster's Dictionary, there's going to be a modern definition and an original definition. And the original definition of this word um, is uh, real being. That's the definition of it, real being. So we're going back to this word being, right? That's, that's the original definition, real being. Um, <clears throat> so... We simplify um, this the historical definition of the Trinity uh, with the pref- um, that God is one in essence and three in subsistence. So that's what originally um, this this statement was that God is one in essence. about um, a couple weeks ago how that the Trinity doesn't break the law of non-contradiction which says that A cannot be A and non-A in, at the same time and in the same relationship. So that's why that this word and is important. So this was the original um, way that we that the early church defined the Trinity that God is one in essence and three in subsistence. Now some of these words um, modern translators and, and modern um, theologians, they changed it and they said that God is one in essence and three in persons. And that's kind of what we're more, more familiar with. So that all kind of came from this. It was um, a way that they kind of changed it. So um, I think that this is a better definition of the Trinity, that God is one in essence and three in subsistence instead of... Um, one in essence and three in person. It kind of means the same thing, um, but uh, I think historically, I like this statement better. It's just one that we're not as familiar with. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, this is basically the, th- the the main words that were used to describe the Trinity. Uh, and, of course, we u- they used philosophy to get some of these words. And so did John. So John, John brought some of this stuff into um, Scripture. So 
Christian theologians took this stuff to help us better understand. And we'll start seeing some of these words whenever we get over to um, the Nicene Creed and some of the other creeds that were written later on. So, um, but I wanted to put this on the board. And if, um, it's going to be tough for people that are listening uh, to, to, to be able to understand what I have written here. Um, so, um, I don't know, maybe I'll take a picture of it and try to attach it to the podcast or something somehow. Maybe I'll try that so that people can can see uh, what we're talking about. Because it is kind of, it's a difficult concept for us because we, um, we're not used to this kind of language. Um, unless you study philosophy um, or, or church history. But this will help you when you do study church history because you'll start seeing some of these words. And so they should start kind of ringing out as to what they mean. And speaking of church history, over on page 28, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about church history. In the second century, a view of God was developed called monarchianism. What is monarchianism? Does anybody know what the definition of monarchianism is? Anybody ever heard that term? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, and we're going to talk about that. So, if you look at just the word um, monarchianism, it sounds right, because we know what a monarch is, right? We know a, mo- a monarch is a single ruler. So, what originally, kind of what that they had in mind with this word monarchianism, was that God exists as a single ruler. Um, but then... That word, it um, it began to, to drift into heresy, um, and that's what it's known for today. So today, if you hear the word monarchianism, even though it sounds correct, uh, and technically the word is, God is a single ruler, um, this is famous for uh, heresy, and we're going to talk a little bit about this. It came in two different forms, which you have on your page here. One is modalism. And one is adoptionism. We talked uh, a little bit about modalism last week. I said we're going to try to jump into it. Um, So what is modalism? And if you guys remember, we talked about it last week, but has anybody heard of the word modalism? And think of think of the way that the word is broken down. That's always real helpful. Mode. You know, what's a what's a mode? So when you think of modalism, (coughs) what, what do you think that means? Any thoughts? Hmm? Mortal? What? Mortal. It's mortal. Mortal? 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 Oh, a model. Yeah, well, kind of, yeah, in a way, in a way, yeah, yeah. I think of the analogy of water, ice, and steam, that it's all water, but it's in different modes. Right. Yep. That's right, yeah, because back to that question, can you describe the Trinity without entering into heresy with just an analogy? And the answer is no. You can't say that God is ice, water, vapor, uh, because, you know, all all those things are the same thing, just in different forms. And so the same thing with an egg. You say, well, God is an egg, you know, he's like an egg shell, and the white and the yolk. That's all still... Um, the same thing in different forms. So basically what modalism does is it considers God to be 
one person who works through uh, different modes of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's kind of like God puts on different hats. We, he puts on the hat of God the Father, and then sometimes he'll put on, he'll take that hat off, put on the hat of God the Son, then he'll take that hat off, and he'll put on the hat of God the Holy Spirit. And the way that this kind of worked out, uh, the way that, that they, they teach this, is that in the Old Testament, that God was in the mode of Father. And in the New Testament, God was in the mode of Son. And today, God's in the mode of the Holy Spirit. That's what modalism teaches. Um, and that's what modalism teaches. And it's, um, it's something that's very prevalent in the South, where we come from, where me and, and my family come from, um, through the, what's called the Oneness Pentecostal Church. They, um, they believe in modalism. They believe in, in modalism. They don't believe in, and matter of fact, even when they baptize, they will not baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They will only baptize in the name of the Father. That's it. Well, not my churches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And so adoptionism, number two, uh, what is adoptionism? And that, that, that's another one that should kind of click when you hear the word. Anybody know what this is, adoptionism? Christ in his human nature was the son of God only by adoption. In his spiritual nature, he was truly God's son. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That it teaches that, that God... Um, that that God the Son was not, he was not co-eternal with the Father. Um, they, they teach that Jesus Christ was essentially granted Godhead, um, or he was adopted for the plans of God and for uh, God's own perfect life and works. That's what they they believe. So, um, and this uh, this is also something that is a very prevalent teaching today, and we'll get into that too. Um, now the main voice, if we look down here on this next point, it says the main voice behind monarchianism was a man named Sibelius, Sibelius who was heavily influenced by Gnosticism and Platonic ideology. So Pla Plato was not a Christian. We do have his, some of his writings, and we got some important information from him. He helped... Um, he, he helped the way that we uh, can describe words and terms, but he was not a Christian, and Platonic, Gnosticism really came from, from Plato. That's really where, and we've talked about, Plato, about Gnosticism. There's many different aspects to Gnosticism. They believe that they have a secret knowledge um, that you have to be, um, level up, basically. You have to go to, to, to higher and higher and higher levels in order to, to get certain information, to get more information. We kind of see that in different churches. Uh, I think Mormonism is one of those that does that. And, of course, um, the JW Church does that. Um, <clears throat> but he, um, he used this analogy um, of the sun and its rays. This is his analogy of modalism. So um, the way that he described this is, you know, we make a distinction between the sun itself and um, sun rays. Uh, the, these, 
lights that that beams through the through the clouds and into our homes you know as a part of the it's a part of the the sun even though the sun is 93 million miles away from us it's here with us and so it's the way he described it is it's here but it's it's like a part of the sun and this is how that he sees god and um in the way that jesus is kind of beamed at us so he he taught that these rays of sunlight they partake in the very nature of the sun uh, they are the same essence as the sun they're just further removed right further removed from the core of the sun so he used um, this analogy to compare the relationship between god the father and god the son so god is the sun and jesus is the sunbeam and he um, emanates from the father but at a lower level yeah, that's the, that was his analogy that's the way that he tried to to uh, show uh, his modalist views um, which was very influenced by Gnosticism and Platonism um, and really this view was rooted in pantheon pantheism too so pantheism we know that God um, that the universe is God is what the, what people say you know with uh, pantheism or you can find God in everything in the trees and in the rocks and in yeah exactly so that's pantheism it's the universe is God and so and I just answered my next question which is what is pantheism so right there on the on the page so it's that idea that that God's essence is in everything so Sibelius used a word that became the most controversial word in church history, the word homoousius. He used homoousius to describe God. And we talked earlier, uh, when we first opened this uh, today, we talked about the word ousios. So that's why I say that this word ousios becomes important because they start putting prefixes in front of ousios, right? And so we're going we're gonna to start kind of begin, beginning to understand uh, to what they mean. We know that ousios means being. The word being um, is the, the Greek word ousios. And so he uses this word, um, he uses the word homo ousios to describe God. So uh, what does the word, the Greek word homo ousios mean? So what's the word homo mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So homo means the same. Yeah, the same. It means the same being or the same substance. So he was using this word homoousios to describe God, which isn't isn't necessarily a bad word, um, and we'll see that in a minute. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad way to describe God. What was bad was the analogy that he was using of the of the sun and its rays but he was using this word to um to describe jesus the jesus's relationship with god the father which was heresy and so the church sees this as heresy even though this word isn't necessarily wrong and we'll we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute so <clears throat> this next point here says what sibelius meant by using homoousios to describe god was that jesus was of the same substance of god which is correct, 
but of a lesser value, which we know is not correct, such as a sunbeam and the sun. So, of course, we can understand, you know, we can stand outside and we're baked in sunbeams, but if we're standing on the core of the sun, we're going to have a much different experience, right? So, <clears throat> so that's kind of the, what, he was, what he was using here. And in A.D. Uh, 267, uh, the Council of Antioch, the church, rejected this term. So um, they, they, they rejected the term homoousios because of this background that Sibelius, the way that he was teaching it, which later on we're going to see this word was adopted as being correct. But because of the way that it was being, um, being taught, because of who, cre who basically invented the word and how that he was teaching this word, um, it, was, it was deemed as heresy by the church. Um, and so they replaced what the church did at this time in uh, 267 A.D. is they replaced the word with homo, homoi. They, they, they replaced homoousios with homoi. They added an I to the end of homo. So homoousios, which means of a similar substance. Whenever you add the I to the end of homo, it means of similar substance. Where homo means of the same substance. Right? Does that start? Does that make sense? Okay. So um, the next point here says today the Oneness Pentecostal Church is modalist. We've already kind of talked a little bit about that. I had one of these guys that worked for me for a while. Actually, I had he he. I wound up hiring him, and I hired two of his friends um, that worked for me for for a while back in Arkansas, and we had some pretty interesting conversations. So I've got another friend that, uh, I'm telling you, these guys are prevalent in Arkansas. There's a lot of them. Um, I've got another friend that, that he's working with, a, with a, a, a modalist or a, a oneness Pentecostal now. And so he's using some of this study. I've sent him my notes to kind of help him to, to uh, have some apologetics toward this guy, to kind of help him to point him in the right direction, that the Trinity is real, that, um, that his view of the Trinity is wrong. And it's heresy. It's entirely heresy. So, um, <clears throat> the next view of God that hit like a hurricane was in introduced by a man named Arius in AD 256 through 336. His view of God became known as adoptionism and later became known as Arianism. He became extremely popular because he and his followers used propaganda through music and song to spread his doctrine. So, um, if you look at church history, this guy, um, he, he, um, th this music that he used in, in song, he, he really was able to, to bring a lot of followers in. And so what happened in church history, this is real, is that people would actually break out in fights between Trinitarians and Arians. They would literally break out in fist fights, like riots in the streets <laughs> during church in, in, in the early church um, because of, of this heresy. Uh, and the, the, uh, the church, the true church, had a very strong view of the Trinity. And this guy, um, he, he, Arius, he, he, he did not believe in the Trinity at all. And so it's amazing how that songs and um, different things like that can, can really draw people in. 
yeah, it can happen today. And we see that all over the place, even with, um, you know, churches that are full of heresy. Uh, we've talked about the New Apostolic Reformation before. This is really the fastest growing uh, church in the world. They're the ones that fill the football stadiums. Um, whenever they have these big uh, revivals, they call them. But they are... Um, they're drawing people in because of their popular songs and their popular music. And we hear them on K-Love. We hear them on, um, on Christian radio. And so some of, the, some of the stuff is very, very dangerous if you really start looking into it. So um, these fights and the way that the, the Trinitarians and uh, these adoptionists, these Aryans, the, these fights that was erupting in the streets, it got so bad that the Roman Emperor Constantine, uh, he had to call an ecumenical council, or it's a, a worldwide church council that was called the Council of Nicaea. Um, and if you remember a few, few weeks ago, we talked about um, what Jehovah's Witnesses who are Arian today in their theology, they accuse us as inventing the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea. They say, well, you know, the, the, the church never taught the Trinity until uh, we get to the Council of Nicaea, which is just not the case. And we've been kind of showing that as we've been going through this. And the Trinity is very clear in Scripture. Um, it's interesting that they have their own Bible version that they take uh, and they try to they they change all the words uh, to try to um, to show that Jesus Christ isn't truly God. If you've ever read, and I don't know if you know any much history on the Jehovah's Witness Church, but their translation has changed several times because they because Trinitarians keep pointing out in their own version of the Bible, hey, look right here, you can see the Trinity, you know, and so they've they've uh, they've changed those words. Uh, at least three times that I know of. I, I, if somebody knows more, let me know. But I know of at least three times that they've updated their Bible because of Trinitarians saying, look, even your own words in your own Bible shows that, th that there is a triune God. And so they'll, they'll change it and come out with, an, with another version. It's really interesting if you look at the way that they did that. But So anyway, the Roman Emperor Constantine, he had to call uh, this church-wide council because this problem had gotten so bad um, between Arianism and the Trinitarians. And so he wanted to put a stop to it. And I don't know if you guys have studied much on Constantine, but he's a very interesting study. Um, he was in the 300s, was when he was emperor. And um, he actually is the one that converted Rome over to Christianity, if you could call it Christianity, because he he apparently said that he saw a vision of a fiery cross in the sky and he heard the voice of God, he, he says, from heaven saying, in this sign conquer. And it was the sign of the cross. And so he sees that and he starts trying to convert himself and the entire country of Rome into Christianity. So all of a sudden Christians went from being persecuted into being the ones that this is our national religion. And so you have to be a Christian, which caused a lot of problems because we had a lot of pagans. And all of a sudden, Constantine's saying, you know, now you have to be a Christian. And so paganism starts coming into the church, too. Yeah. So they created more problems than 
then I mean it it was good that the church was not persecuted anymore don't get me wrong there because that's that's a that's an important thing not like they were because you know how bad it was back then especially with Nero and and all the guys uh, after him all the way up to Constantine they heavily heavily persecuted the church um, so if you flip over to page 30 <clears throat> Arius taught that the first thing that God created was the Logos, and then the Logos created everything else. So we've already talked about the word Logos over here. This is Arius, who is a heretic. This is what he taught. So Jesus was the firstborn creation of God, is what he said. Therefore, higher than all other creations, uh, including angels. So he, he didn't dismiss Christ. He just said he was created. You know, Jesus was was the firstborn creation of God. He's not truly God. He's a demigod, really. Jesus is um, he's creaturely divine. He's creaturely divine, but he's not eternal. Because in order to be eternal, you have to have existence from the very beginning, right? Um, so he, he's not equal with God, but he's, he's like a demigod. So because um, Jesus is in perfect agreement and obedience to God, he is adopted by the Father as God's Son. And that goes back to that adoptionism, which morphs into Arianism, which morphs into the Jehovah Witnesses Church. That's what they believe today. It's the exact same thing. So uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses get all of their doctrine from this right here, from Arius. Arius said that Jesus was neither homoousios nor homoi, Usios, but heterousios of a different substance. And so the Council of Nicaea was presented all three views of God. So this, this big church wide, this uh, worldwide council is all the churches from all of Constantine's empire, which was most of the world at the time. Um, he, he said, All of you guys have to come together and we're going to talk about this because of this major problem between the Trinitarians and the Arians. We have to put a stop to this violence, this fighting, this disruption. So let's come together and let's discuss these things. And so he was presented these three different things Homoousios, which is of the same substance. Homoousios, which is of a similar substance. And hetero. Usios, which is of a different substance. So this is what the Council of Nicaea was had was facing. So just to kind of give you some background on on how important that some of uh, the language was of uh, the Nicene Creed that you guys are probably very familiar with. So they determined what this council did is they determined that the correct view of God was Homo Usios, which was back to to what they first called heresy because of the way that it was being described because the, you know, of the sun and its beams right but they said well you know the correct view was that God is homoousios of the same substance so they changed their stance um, about about what they originally had um, had denied because um, of the way that, that it was taught by Sibelius so they that's why that if if you look at anything Prior to um, to the Nicene Creed, you may see some different language. So this is kind of important, especially if you're studying church history, when you start seeing some of these different words in the way that um, the different church fathers uh, explained them, you'll see 
the change, and that change was at the Nicene, at the Nicene Council, at this council that we're talking about here. So at the Council of um, Nicaea, this next point, it says, Arius was condemned as a heretic, and the Nicene Creed was written. This creed was written in order to once and for all clarify the relationship that Jesus had Jesus was with the Father, that's a typo, was with the Father. It was in that respect a necessary creed, and I am sure that you're begin as you're as I'm sure that you're beginning to understand. So that I gotta make a correction there. It's supposed to be was with the Father. Um <clears throat> So I've got below here the Nicene Creed, which is what the council came up with. And I think we got time to read it. And we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit more about it next week if you guys want to start thinking about it a little bit. But the, this council took, um, they took this very seriously because they had, if you, if you do a study of this church council, um, it was a very long process. They had... All these different views that was that was brought to them so they had to get together they had to talk about it and then they had to develop this creed which um, if you have you know a council I think there's over 300 of them and they all had to agree on every single word that went into this creed uh, that's a pretty big task because they they would argue and fight over every read every single word trying to make sure that the words that they used were correct and biblical so all of this stuff they drew out of different parts of scripture and um and they just threw it into a, a creed to kind of uh, once and for all show the view that the church held as far as the trinity and so that's that's what we have here so i'm going to read it the nicene creed it says we believe in one god the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence, there's one of those words, of the, as the Father, through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sin. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. So the only thing I want to pull out right here at first is if you guys don't know this word Catholic that you see here. This is talk. 
this is talking about the universal church. Um, it's not talking about the Roman Catholic church. There's a huge difference. If you look at all the writings of the church fathers, they are always bringing up this word, the word Catholic. And what they mean by the word Catholic isn't what we think of when we think of the word Catholic. We think of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, they're saying a unified church. They're saying this is what we believe as uh, the word Catholic literally, literally means that. It means to be a universal. So they're saying that every Christian, every church on this planet, they're saying that they're using that word Catholic to mean that the unity of every church. Later um, in church history, there was a separation. Um, but, uh, you know, we know that the Roman Catholic Church started kind of dominating. Um, it started really... It, it, some of the heresies didn't start until later on. We'll say about the 1200s, 1100s, 1200s. There were some heresies from what the role we would call the Roman Catholic Church started coming in uh, and it was through church councils uh, so not all the church councils were good uh, this one was good um, really the first five were good were pretty good but then after that they started getting really bad and we start seeing that complete development of the Roman Catholic Church um, so and then there was even a split of that between East and West which is another whole different conversation that we, we may get into someday on church history. But I just wanted to point this word Catholic out because when we read this, we don't want to be shocked and go, oh, this is a Roman Catholic. You know, this is a Roman Catholic uh, creed because it's not a Roman Catholic creed. Even though Roman Catholics would uh, agree to this, you know, they would agree to this creed. Um, but this is not um, a Roman Catholic creed. So don't let that scare you when you see the word Catholic, especially in early church writings anything you know prior to 1200s or so um this is talking universal universal church so you guys have any questions on that or any thoughts the creed creed means, creed means what is the mean, uh, meaning of creed the meaning of creed it's just it's just a it's a statement <coughs> that was brought together um and agreed on um, by the by the church and so it's just yeah that's what a, a creed is it's just a, a, an agreed upon statement basically that has to be um, agreed on by many different people um, by this by a church council um, that's where most of the creeds came from and there are some better creeds that develop um, later on that we'll talk about a little bit especially when it comes to Christ like there's some stuff in this creed um, that's a little, uh, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. on the way that they describe Jesus. Um, but this is better clarified later. So there's, um, and we'll, we'll get into that too, a little bit, uh, later on, but we're out of time. So, um, is there any other questions or thoughts on what we've talked about so far besides my big goof up <laughs> on getting confused between these two words? I hope that this kind of helps us to understand um, some of these words and the way that the way that it helped us to develop um, the Nicene Creed and why why that it was important. I think it, it's helpful for me, you know, to to see how um, different words have a meaning to them that's much deeper than what I may have 
have originally thought when you first hear the word, like the word essence or existence or subsistence or, you know, these different words um, and the way that the church defined them and used them. Um, but it's real important for us to always go back to see what the original definition of some of these words are instead of a modern definition. Uh, we have to see what the context was when they were written, or it can be confusing, like the word subsistence, because today we think of, well, that's, you know, we think of uh, people living in the ghetto or something. That's a more of a modern definition of it, but it's, um, that's not what it was originally intended to mean. Um, and so there's several words like that. I'm, uh, anytime I bring a word up, if I forget to, to say what the original meaning is, you know, because there are more modern definitions, and my mind's always stuck back in, in the past. So, uh, yeah, let me know. Just like uh, anthropomorphic, you know. Somebody brought that up. Steve brought that up. Nikki brought that up. Like, oh, you know, there's a modern definition. That could mean Scooby-Doo. <laughs> or it could mean, you know, a cartoon. Like, yeah, I can. That's the modern, that's the modern definition. And I should have said that, but I didn't because my mind's stuck in the past. So... Any other thoughts? Or? I think that a lot of this we're studying was because of Christ being called the Son of God. But that just automatically, yes. they related to how we think of Son. Yeah. So that just automatically yeah. makes sense to know him to be God. Yeah, and because, they, because Scripture says that he's the firstborn of all creation. Yeah. yeah. And they forget that it's, I don't think most people ever think about what God does is help us understand relationship is caring um, and how we should relate to one another. Yeah. Um, yeah. Otherwise he wouldn't use those terms because it, it wouldn't be a necessity. It's for our sake. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think I think that's exactly right. That that's some of the scriptures that they use to try to prove the point. Arianism, which is so prevalent today. Um, that they, they disagree with the Trinity. Say that we invented it here at this creed with the creed of Na at Nicaea, uh, which we did not. So, and we've we've I think we've done a pretty good job pulling um, different views of the Trinity, even from the Old Testament. And we've read scripture in the Old Testament that points us to the Trinity. I think it's it's hard to you really have to try to to get to where they're at, you know, to believe that there's. Um, that God just puts on different hats, that, that he's not triune. I think you have to try pretty hard to, to get there. Because scripture is pretty clear to me. I mean, when you when you read it, it's, it seems very clear to me. Um, all right. Steve, you want to pray for us?